0: You are now entering the transit, the transit
1: zone. Mr. Speaker, the budget that was brought down on Tuesday night, the 1992-93 budget, is already dead in the water. Yeah. It's been discredited in record time. <clears throat> we should never forget that John Kerran was sacked for bringing in a better budget than this one. <laughs> Why is it dead? Firstly, it's dead because of its dishonesty. It's failed to honestly assess the state of our nation, the magnitude of our problems, and to deliver policy solutions to deal with those problems. Secondly, it's dead because it's been almost universally canned by every major commentator in Australia. Thirdly, it's dead dead because the Treasurer himself has undermined his own budget. It's a $50 billion accumulation of deficits that is unfunded. He came here the other night with a secret tax agenda Oh. And we all know on this side of the parliament that the only difference between you and us in terms of the funding of the package is that we are honest enough to say we're going to have a GST, you've put yours in the bottom drawer, and you're going to pull it out after the next election. <laughs> <laughs> which of course you have absolutely which of course you have absolutely no hope no hope of winning. Order. You are short. 50-
2: Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia.
0: Margot Kingston in Comboing, New South
2: Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beepai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Our guest this time in The Zone is the former Federal Opposition Leader, Dr John Hewson. Dr Houston is currently a professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and adjunct professor at a range of other universities but his career has also been in business and of course politics. More recently, John has been increasingly outspoken about the state and the details of Australian politics, especially under the Morrison government via the media. With Labor stalwart Barry Jones, he is now a joint honorary patron of the not-for-profit Truth and Integrity Project, which has a self-acquired remit of tackling and debating the state of Australian politics, including corruption and the impoverished quality of political debate and discourse. John Houston is with us in Sydney. John Houston, welcome to The Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter.
0: John, I'd like you to tell me what climate change action policy you took to the 1993 election under your Fight Back plan.
3: It was for a 20% cut in emissions by the year 2000, off a 1990 base. Our strategy behind that was, of course, an emissions trading scheme to set the market price for carbon. We got close in 2007 (laughs) when Howard uh, agreed finally under pressure of possibly losing his seat and government. He agreed with Rudd. Rudd had gained a lot of ground against Howard in terms of his willingness to ratify Kyoto. Howard was not prepared to do that. He had a couple of those things. One was that and one was to say sorry. Uh, I think both of those became key elements of his demise. I think back to where we would be today if we'd gone with that sort of strategy and repeated it each decade. We'd be so far ahead of our 2030 Paris commitments, the debate would have had some substance. All this time we just had point scoring and uh, blame
0: shifting, which has been very expensive in terms of lost jobs and growth. So just the, the bigger picture, you went from Andrew Peacock taking the first ever climate change policy to an election to you putting putting a, a pretty, pretty solid plan out there. And then once Howard got in, it's just been wall to wall doing nothing and then actively being climate denialist. So, so what has happened to the party there? They've
3: had periods where they were acti- actively trying to undo the process. Instead of facilitating the transition, Abbott did everything he could to block it. And Gillard, to her credit, actually changed her position on climate. Never going to have a price on carbon under a government she led. And then, of course, she changed her mind. Abbott just used that as a platform on which to attack her government and, and subsequently Rudd's government. Totally counterproductive. Ironically, the only serious emissions reductions we've had in this country have come about because of foregoing land clearing by the states <laughs> or by Gillard's price on carbon.
0: Morrison's out there claiming credit, but he hasn't done anything. Why did the, did the party change so much on climate change? What, what, what forces made that happen? Oh, it was just
3: political opportunism. Abbott uh, ran hard. Gillard made a mistake, I think, in announcing back in February of that year she announced that she'd changed her position without any detail. She didn't give any detail of the pricing structure until July. So from February to July, Abbott just had free reign and he ran around the country running negative arguments. You know, everything was going to fall apart while it was going to close. Um, whatever whatever argument came into his head, uh, you know, your hair was going to fall out, whatever. He got away with it. He was uncontested through that process. And of course, then he set out to destroy the renewable energy industry. You might remember he wanted to abolish the renewable energy target and to close the industry, basically. He had some support from one of the big uh, energy groups, Origin at the time. He came close to doing it and that was just political opportunism. It wasn't anything about national interest.
0: Malcolm actually spoke about that bite to save the RET in our interview and a really interesting point he made was it was the regional seat holders that wanted to save the RET. It just seems strange that the party or has been allowed to go that far denial, that the Liberal voters have let, let that happen?
3: Yes, there's a lot of ignorance which was um, extended, extrapolated uh, into that debate. I think the regional members realised that some of the transition that had to take place to get to a low-carbon Australia was going to be beneficial to their regions. Things like waste recycling and regional biofuel refineries, uh, all sorts of possibilities in a bioenergy economy, a circular economy. There were different perspectives on this from an electorate point of view, but you'd have to say that most of the members of parliament did not reflect the views of their constituency or their electorates. They had lost touch with that. That started to show up in in later events, as you saw the uh, Wentworth by-election. I think the most conspicuous example of a party losing touch with its electorate was the National Party losing touch over the same-sex marriage vote. They had the expectation that they'd get 15 of their 16 seats would vote no A significant number, 15 of the 16 voted yes, some of them quite decisively, and that caught them by surprise. It showed that they didn't relate to their constituency at all. They had a preconceived notion. Tony Abbott is a classic example where his constituency voted uh, yes, and he wasn't prepared to reflect that view in the parliamentary vote. Indeed, I think in the end abstained why he ended up losing, because he was not reflecting his local community's views on an issue, on a key issue. And of course, on climate as well, he had a bad track record on climate, made it easy for Zali to run hard against that and pull votes off him.
2: Dr. Houston, I want to go big picture as well. What for you today are the bedrock principles or the, I guess you could call them the planks of contemporary democracy, that animate your thinking around the idea of integrity and truthfulness in government?
3: I think a lot of the average voters just have this view that the big questions should be dealt with by government. You know, they can't have a direct influence on in a lot of them themselves. They don't feel they, are, they feel a bit powerless, disenfranchised, and uh, the government's not been responding at all on these bigger issues. And uh, it's not just uh, climate climate's a good example, but aged care is, a good, is another good example where the government ducked its responsibilities on that. People have become very concerned that, that government is not being conducted in the national interest or in the interests of particular, and members aren't representing the views of their constituency. That's why I think these community-based independents are getting so much interest and support these days.
0: You and Barry Jones have formed, I suppose some would say, an unlikely partnership, but I think I think it's it's um it's a great one because you both you're both visionaries with grand plans, but find day-to-day politics a little difficult.
3: <laughs> I've had a very high regard for Barry since the days of the Pickleball. Yes,
0: Spaghetti Nation. <laughs> I love that. So you two have got <laughs> together to be patrons of this.
3: Yes, we're on a number of other things. We're, to, we're directors of uh, the Accountability Roundtable together. We are part of the advisory group, patron level, on uh, Simon Holmes of Court's Climate 200.
0: Are you on the advisory board of that?
3: Yes, the two of us are. You know, it's a natural relationship. We've ser- shared a concern that the major issues, there's been no attempt to govern in the interests of the, of the, of the nation. I mean, to see to see this process of government, selling out to particular vested interests has been appalling. And it's been taken to ridiculous extremes when you have a, an advisory group on the COVID recovery and you put a lot of gas industry people on there. Surprise, surprise, they recommend gas as a transition, which most of us would never have contemplated. I mean, back in the early days of the climate debate, the early 90s, gas was seen as a transition fuel. It gave you much lower emissions than black or brown coal, but that was you know 30 years ago. it's no longer seen as a transition. You don't need to make that step anymore when solar and wind are so much cheaper and uh, have been so much uh, de-risked as far as the investment community is concerned that you wouldn't contemplate doing a gas project. It'll be a stranded asset within a decade. That shows you the extent to which they've drifted away from what should be good government based on evidence. The evidence is overwhelmingly against it, yet we get told how important this is. It may be in you know, a particular area they can see jobs are associated with a new gas project, but that's not in the national interest and it's not in the long-term interest of those communities either. You know, boost them up and then bring them down, are Just uh, it's very irresponsible government, very reckless. And so Barry and I have had long talks about some of these issues over the years and become increasingly frustrated that two major parties are just tuned out on all this, uh, thinking that they're winning electoral support by taking narrow positions. Uh, on you know, sometimes quite extreme positions. It's hard to believe that the climate wars resulted in no net gain for the country. We end up with the farce of the recent time of, of Morrison, you know, abrogating his responsibility to set a, a process to take to COP26 and giving it to, uh, as CNN described him, a, an ex-accountant in a cowboy hat, letting Barnaby Joyce uh, call the shots on that is just ridiculous. You know, it's, uh, it's irresponsible in the extreme. It's reckless. And uh, that's where we've ended up. You know, I, th- I think we had bipartisan support in the early 90s for what we wanted to do. I mean, there was not any political negativity around making a process out of uh, climate. And I think back to how many opportunities we squandered, the National Party not having a regional strategy, and yet so much of the response to climate in terms of transitions is a regional strategy for them. And they just ignore it. They don't want to understand it. I once debated Barnaby Joyce about regenerative agriculture, (laughs) it was beyond him. (laughs) You know, it's uh, no interest in the fact that farmers can actually improve the carbon content of the soil, make their soils more drought resistant, improve their resilience and have another income stream by selling the carbon credits they generate, not having to put their hand out for welfare, which they don't like in an extreme weather event. And you know, agriculture is the most exposed sector. It's going to suffer most from climate change, the extreme weather events and the costs of inaction in there. We've seen some horrific costs. We rate it as one of the highest in, in, uh, in the world in terms of cleaning up after, the cost of cleaning up after these natural disasters, per capita costs that is, yet the position of the National Party is to exclude agriculture from, from any commitments. It's sort of insane, really shows you you do not not understand your constituency when the National Farmers Federation is out there arguing strongly for net zero, um, New South Wales farmers and all the main agriculture groups. And the Grains Council I spoke at a while back and they're talking three to one benefit. Put one unit of carbon into the system, they can take three out. And so they can actually be net negative emissions. (laughs) You want an effective transition, you give agriculture a prominent place, you don't ignore it. It's, it's staggering. It's, it's, it's sort of um, hard to believe there's overwhelming evidence of all this. Australia could lead the world given our the extent of our land, our pastoral land, grazing lands and uh, cropping lands. We can demonstrate this to the world, uh, which is where the world is going to go. We've, we've just been designated the leading laggard on climate. That should be a national embarrassment.
2: Dr Houston, do you agree with the proposition that democracy itself is in retreat globally, including the United Kingdom, the United States, and certainly in those European very thin veneer authoritarian democracies, such as Hungary, I guess, as a primary example. Is there one democracy, and you can include New Zealand if you like, you can point to today that is an exemplar, a democracy that's vital, healthy, and robust? Is there one you can point to?
3: Um, You'd like to say there are several examples, but it's hard to be pure about this. No, I think that uh, democracy is being consistently undermined by vested interests around the world. And you saw the ridiculous experience of Trump in the United States, the damage that was done there. It was just staggering. And it was quite obvious that that would happen. It's a guy that was least qualified for that job. <laughs> and uh, despite all the hoopla and hubris, he's incapable of running a government. I think he's paid a very big price, I mean, the US has paid a very big price. And, So has the world as a result of that experiment. I was very annoyed that we had these Trump imitators in Australia who thought this was the way to go. There's still an element of that in our system, those who aspire to being able to just ignore market realities or political realities, community realities, and just get on and do what they do (laughs) to their own benefit.
2: It's staggering. Dr. Hewson's secrecy, I think you'll agree, has become a hallmark of the Scott Morrison government, and that propensity, particularly on the part of Morrison, goes back well before he was uh, Prime Minister. Oh, yes. Of course, confidentiality and a measure of secrecy do seem necessary for modern governance. But what, in your opinion, are the proper boundaries? When is secrecy gratuitous and self-serving? And when is it necessary? And I want to tie that to the whole idea of truth and integrity.
3: Yes, you can understand uh, the need for secrecy, whether it's a national security dimension or whether it's... um just in terms of the capacity of a government to implement what it wants to do, get caught up in unnecessary debate early on. It can be distracting. It's a difficult balance, it seems, for these governments to settle on a, on an approach. I was most offended recently by the um, extent to which the government was prepared to go to keep the proceedings of their case against Bernard Kaleri, the whistleblower, witness uh, K, over what was a totally, I think, criminal act by the Howard government, Howard Downer facilitating the bugging of an embassy and of the government, actually, in uh, Timor-Leste to the benefit of a couple of big global companies and some of the individuals involved who've got uh, subsequently got benefits in terms of that sort of deal. I think in either country, that would have been a criminal activity. And here, under the cover of an aid budget, we put bugging devices in the government offices. And uh, when somebody sort of says raises some moral concerns about this, in the end, there's a case brought against them and uh, conducted in secrecy. There's no reason why any of that should be secret. It should be laid out in full and people should be held accountable for their actions. I thought that was the low point of that area in recent years. They're still pursuing uh, Witnesses K's uh, lawyer, Bernard Caleri, to a ridiculous extent, because he was told about the issue, as as a lawyer should be, briefed <laughs> to defend a client. I mean, it sort of lost any sense of reality in there. And I think that shows you the extent to which governments have taken an extreme position on this, on the issue of secrecy. You know, and I think people worry about not having enough information. You hear the defence minister out there talking about the threat of China invading Australia, or at war with Australia, without the, any, any evidence to suggest that that's a realistic assessment. Those sort of statements uh, worry a lot of people. obviously there's a political motivation here, let's have a khaki election, thinking that that would be to their benefit. But so much of what was done has been done in secret. So a lot of the information about asylum seekers was withheld, you know, in in the name of stopping the boats, a three-word slogan, without allowing the community to have a proper debate about that issue, which is very important. And we go off to a war in Iraq on the basis of very spurious evidence. I recall opposing
0: that and, and, you know, I could not believe that we just went into that without proper consideration. You and Barry um, are fronting or are patrons of this Truth and Integrity project. Could you tell me how you got involved and what its, what its um, purpose is? Yes, yeah, so our,
3: our end game is really we're, we're going to prepare some YouTube videos that we can run into key marginal seats on some of these issues. The issue of integrity and accountability in government is going to be a dominant overarching issue in the next campaign. The government, surprisingly, continues to duck its responsibilities for accountability. This constant uh, ducking of the issue of a a national ICAC or a National Integrity Commission, I think the electorate is way ahead of them on that. They want accountability. When people realise that although the government has released an exposure draft, which they seem intent in Recent days of sticking with and doing no more, not making no attempt to improve it. When people start to realise that that doesn't catch things like sports rorts and car park rorts, uh, and it's sort of a protection racket for, for, for ministers and their staff, it's not going to actually get to the essence of the issue. At the same time, the government will, you know, gets a report from the Auditor General, which is an embarrassment to it, so it responds by cutting the funding of the Auditor General in the budget. I mean, that has worn very thin with a lot of people in the electorate. There is no accountability. In terms of COVID, the government has a clear constitutional responsibility for, um, for quarantine. A specific section of the constitution refers to their responsibilities for quarantine. You know, and they do enforce it with vigor at times. You try and bring a banana into the country. You know, at the airport, you'll get held up. <laughs> it's okay to wander through with COVID off a, off a ruby princess or whatever. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, that's, that's become a ridiculous thing to a lot of people, this um, unwillingness to be accountable. Where you've got clear responsibilities, you can't suddenly fob it off to the states. Even today we're hearing that, you know, if we are going to have to have quarantine because of this new uh, variant of the virus, Omicron, that, that, that's a state problem. Already we're getting it fobbed off. And most people just say that can't be you can't it was never right that you could just open the border without quarantine
0: So John when when you say that it's in marginal seats that the, the purpose of the truth integrity project is is to change the government is that right
3: Well the purpose is to actually make sure that these issues are addressed on the evidence Right you know, I mean you think about some of the sports shorts where yeah. you're giving funding lights at playing fields that don't exist or women's you know toilet facilities where there's no women's team and this sort of thing it's just ridiculous. I ran that first uh, sports shorts exercise against uh, Ros Kelly.
0: Yeah, and I ran it for the Canberra Times, remember?
3: Yes. And, you know, I started that by just contacting my local members and said, there are these grants that have been given in particular seats. Tell me what they did in your seat. And they found, we've compiled a list of the most unbelievable, you know, money going to playing fields that didn't exist and you know, lights on fields that didn't exist and this sort of thing. And The money was just a handout and then the low point of that whole process, I think, was at the last election when you had Downer's daughter standing up handing a cheque to the local bowling club, (laughs) you know, with no authority to do so. I think that offended a lot of people to see that sort of imagery. It shows you how arrogant government had become and so isolated from the reality of the circumstances. I've always been very skeptical of how much pork barreling is going to buy Genuine electoral support. This is their perceived electoral support that they'll get by putting money into seats like that, and I don't think that uh, you know it makes much sense. I, I don't. I can't believe that they just continue to do this as if there are no consequences. Of course, these sort of choices have big consequences, and uh, they're reducing those those consequences. The worst feature of the recent of recent months has been the attempt by government to normalise pork barreling, to say you know. We had a mandate at the last election. People knew we were spending this money. They didn't, of course. Nobody knew. it would seen a list of the colour coded uh, allocations of money to marginal seats. That wasn't the subject of a national debate and vote, a basis for a vote. But they've claimed a mandate uh, and they've normalised that this is a normal process of government. Pork barrelling is a normal feature of government. You've heard it in New South Wales. Gladys around that line in New South Wales. Um, you had Birmingham, who should know better as finance minister, responsible for policing, for policing the allocation of government money, and uh, making sure that it's actually properly directed. He was on television normalising it, saying, "Well, this is just an outstanding feature of government. We get a mandate at the election, which is rubbish." You know, you lay that out before an election, and you won't get in much electoral support for that sort of very um, targeted allocation by key marginal seats. Uh, The evidence of the extent of that abuse in terms of a color-coded document uh, by seats is overwhelming and I think if people were given an opportunity to digest that, it would certainly not result in government getting support. They're the sort of issues that have been allowed to run over the last few years which have just been degrading our democracy, to go back to your point, Peter. People wonder why bother voting if my vote's worthless. I need to make sure my vote counts. How do I make my vote count? That's part of the process, giving people value for their vote. Unfortunately, there's not much of that thinking going on. Government seems to act as if they're beyond reproach, they're above it all, they're arrogant. You know, we're in government, don't you know who we are? We're the government. (laughs) That sort of attitude is uh, very disturbing.
2: You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston, our guest in Sydney, the former federal opposition leader and joint patron of the Truth and Integrity Project, Dr John Hewson. Dr Hewson, it seems Scott Morrison has seeded I think you'll agree, a significant amount of power to state premiers during this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I don't think he planned to. No, I don't think so either. But he's also simultaneously fostered and stoked blatant partisan discord between the states around borders, around lockdowns, and now around vaccination mandates, an area he actually abdicated to. There's no clear overarching federal framework for vaccination mandates. It's been left to the states, corporations, institutions such as the University of Melbourne and other universities and small business to impose and enforce vaccination mandates. How do you now view the dynamics and more importantly the health of the Australian Federation?
3: You know I thought the uh, National Cabinet was a bit of a fiction, it's obviously not a cabinet. And uh, to have excluded the opposition from day one, I think, was a mistake. It offered the possibility, maybe, of reform of our federation, which has been a long-term structural challenge. The clear allocation of responsibilities. We have these anomalous positions where the barrier reef is a national asset, yet we say that it's a Queensland government responsibility in the first place. Well, that's basis for concern for a lot of people, I think. We have all these inconsistencies in transport regulations and uh, industrial relations, insurance, uh, you know, one state to the next. Try buy a car in another state, see what you go through, <laughs> you know. Um, we extradite criminals between states, there's no sense of national in there. And this has always been a constraint on our, I mean, you know, some people have favoured competitive federalism where the states compete with each other, pull resources from each other. I guess we go back to the old uh, different rail gauges. <laughs> you go to Albury from Sydney and you have to change trains uh, to get to Melbourne. These days were probably a low point in many respects, but I was hopeful that a lot of that could be put behind us with a proper agreement to come out of this, that let's allocate responsibilities clearly. Let's accept what truly is national and what is um, more a state responsibility. As it's happened, it's the, the responses to COVID have just been left to the states to determine as they did, as, as they could. And there have been differences between states which have been not not constructive, have had this state border closures which have been very disruptive. The government complains about that, but it's a consequence of what they've done. They do carry responsibility for downgrading the effectiveness of the Federation, as ineffective as it was. (laughs) You know, I think that uh, they made it even worse. Uh, We have this situation now with differences in attitudes to vaccinations, but even Morrison himself, is of two minds on these things. He likes to tie the opening up, if you like, of the economies to a a specific double jab vaccination percentage and opening an international border on that basis and so on. But he then says thinks that the unvaccinated should be able to get a cup of coffee. (laughs) There's no consequence of the decision to decide not to be vaccinated and ignore the consequences for the rest of the Australian community of people who choose not to be vaccinated. This is showing a lack of integrity on the whole process of this. Morrison's happy for Pauline Hanson to run some sort of uh, bill in that respect to set a framework within which, you know, the the nation should be able to respond. He, He talks a lot about individual security and freedom. Well, people want some framework within which to think about those issues. There is no framework.
0: You and Barry have been very active in, in speaking to voices for groups since the election yes. So and quite supportive of, of community groups growing in, in seats to select independents. I, I assume you're no longer a member of the Liberal Party, is that right? No,
3: that's right. My <laughs> wife was paying my dues and just didn't <laughs> pay them.
0: <laughs> so how long have you been free? <laughs> uh,
3: probably uh, best part of a year oh, or is so. That all? More, okay. maybe more. Maybe longer. I'm not sure. I don't know the effective impact of that. <laughs> But the Liberal Party has lost touch with what its purpose is. And I think both parties have become so self-absorbed, you know, their own processes has become endgames. You look at the branch stacking experiences, uh, the, the uh, discouragement of certain candidates, the uh, inability to get a gender balance into politics is staggering in a way, despite all the hoopla you hear about that. I think this independent movement will make a, dig- a big difference so, so far most of the a majority of the declared candidates for independence, community based independence, have been women all of them all of them have they oh, well that's good i think that's going to make a huge difference there's no doubt that we've uh, downplayed the system has downplayed the significance of a female contribution as well as the downside of a lot of the treatment of women within the parliament beyond the parliament domestic violence these big, they're big issues that have not, you know, they've become cannon fodder for political parties. They have not dealt with them. They have just let them drift. You know, Abbott comes in, he cuts a whole lot of money for women's refuges, and then, you know, <laughs> says, Oh, well, the woman should just leave the husband. You know, where to? You know, <laughs> where to? There's no thinking, there's no overarching strategy in any of that. And they've never given women's issues the prominence they deserve. And the parties make it very difficult for women to get pre-selected.
0: Do you still live in Wentworth, John?
3: No, I live in Barrow. I live in Whitlam.
0: (laughs) Oh, God. Oh.
3: (laughs) (laughs) As Goff used to say to me, uh, comrade, every time he saw me, I'd say say, constituent. He was my my constituent.
0: If you still lived in Wentworth, would you vote for Allegra Spender?
3: I think she's going to be a very good challenge for for, uh, Sharma. I have no doubt that if she runs hard on on climate and... uh, and uh, accountability in government, I think that'll, have a, that'll resonate in Wentworth. I said that at the time when Karen Phelps stood. I was sitting in the ABC waiting to do an interview when they announced that there was a by-election in Wentworth. I said, gosh, the Liberal Party could lose that seat. And Anthony Green said to me, no way. <laughs> the numbers... Are, it was a 17.5% swing. Now, my point was a strong independent candidate that reflected the interests of the community On issues like climate, could win the seat. I knew from my own experience the significance of what we used to call green issues in that seat were very real. I remember going to some morning teas with some of the older brigade in that seat and them telling me how they blocked the Franklin Dam. (laughs) I sort of mentioned, I'd mentioned that I thought Hawke had something to do with it. And um, (laughs) no, no, they were passionate, really passionate about these issues. I noticed uh, when when Karen stood, in the early days of that campaign, I attended a rally in Bondi, an anti-Adani rally. I took my then 17-year-old daughter, 16-year-old daughter, door-knocking on, on Adani. Really? <laughs> she was staggered. She was staggered that the reaction was very positive. You know, we didn't get killed or thrown out the door or this sort of thing. She was quite surprised. But you could see how in that seat those issues, are. they do resonate very significantly. They have a better sense of the national interest of, of government that government should have. So I think Allegra will do well. Could, could I take that, that as a, that a vote field. one She's a good you? candidate. Yeah. On paper, obviously, yeah. stacks up really well. That helps in
2: politics. <laughs> Dr Houston, when you were federal opposition leader, it was still obviously an era before the full-blown internet, before social media. Mass media with large unified audiences was still the norm. I remember very well, I think in Martin Places, I've got an image in my mind, you faced mixed crowds with interjectors from the back and standing on a truck trail, similar. In your view, how has the contemporary fragmentation and I guess tribalising of the media affected politics and our democracy?
3: Well, the digitalisation process has had a big impact on the media.
2: So many competing platforms for
3: news accessible to different groups of the community in different ways. It's obviously made a huge difference. At the same time, I've seen a hollowing out of the media more inclined to support the government or to downplay criticism, and downplay controversy and debate, which I think is a tragedy. OK, we have a dominant media group that uh, has a big impact. I think Murdoch has about, what, 80% of the m- newsprint, does he? Something like that. And the influence goes way beyond that And of course, you've got Sky and the Monsters After Dark and that sort of thing. They've had a big impact. You find those people appearing on being written up in other... Other newspapers and other media sources. So the influence is way beyond the measured influence. It's been very disappointing to see the media, you know, leave. I think it's principal responsibility in that respect. I've had editors tell me, "You can't do that. That's you can't criticise the government. That's a rant." <laughs> so really. <laughs> I remember when I first went into politics and when I first became leader, I should say, I made a conscious decision to visit all the newspaper editors, which I did carefully and just to introduce myself and talk about the sort of changes we wanted to make. I'll never forget meeting Paul Kelly at The Australian and he said I needed to understand that they had an agenda. If um, I happened to say things that were consistent with that agenda, they may give me a positive run. But if I were inconsistent with that agenda, I'd definitely not get a positive here. <laughs> now, I thought that was the most revealing experience. Not necessarily Murdoch's personal agenda, but there's a lot of imitators in those organisations that don't want to offend the boss. They say what they, they write or think or say what they think the boss might like to hear. Because there's been a transition within the Murdoch empire. James stepping back on the issue of climate and Lachlan taking a much greater influence. So we're not necessarily in a more enlightened era. One of the tragedies, I think, is a lot of the media saw themselves as players in the game. I remember when when Rudd was brought down the first time, Sky News was very proud of it having its cameras outside his office in the corridor and checking on who was coming and going from the office and running the argument that the spill was on. I remember, I think it was John Faulkner doing a television interview not knowing anything about this so-called spill that was on. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, this was driven by the media to a large extent, and seeing media think that they're players in those games is is, is counterproductive to the process of democracy. They're not, they're missing what their role is. You saw it in the Trump era in the United States, how Fox News really saw themselves as a mouthpiece for for Trump in many ways, and did irreparable damage to the authenticity of media generally. There's a fair bit of soul searching to go on there. It's not an easy area, of course, with social media. The business models of social media being able to generate and uh, on-sell data unconstrained by any sort of regulation should have been dealt with at the beginning. No framework within which they are allowed to operate, which staggered me. I mean, government should set that framework. Here we are seeing governments trying to play catch up now on the, on the impact that social media is having.
2: John, how big a threat to our democracy are the social media and the search behemoths such as Facebook, Google, YouTube, etc.? Are they, in your analysis, platforms or publishers, and how will they be made accountable within our democracy?
3: Well, they're reluctant to admit that they're publishers, <laughs> you know, they like to stick with the concept of a platform. They are both, and they certainly see themselves as publishing on those platforms, I think, which carries responsibilities, which they're ducking right now. They don't want to be held accountable for some of that. It's not surprising that social media has had the impact it has because most people have fairly strong opinions about things and everyone can be a commentator on social media. So (laughs) they have been able to exploit that to their advantage. Very few politicians have worked out how to use social media effectively, I think. Obama was very clever in the way he raised a lot of money on social media. You know, you could sell lamingtons and contribute to the Obama campaign. <laughs> that that it doesn't bring with it a level of engagement which would not otherwise be there. But um, it's not just a question of buying advertising space on social media to get your me- message out, I think. Governments have let the horse go and, you know, it's bolted and it's hard to bring it back into the
2: paddock. So do you think there's going to be an attainable accountability for the Facebooks, for the Googles?
3: Well, it depends a lot on the on the proprietors of those businesses willing to come back from their business model. Being able to generate a lot of data on individuals and, and on on sell that data is a you know, very attractive business model. I'm sure they've made a lot of money out of it, uh, but it's one that's been abused as we've seen in some of the campaigning in the UK, which is uh, distorting the results of the, that information to the benefit of political parties. And we all have responsibilities in society and it's important that we recognise what they are and that, uh, what it means to be to have those responsibilities. It's not a great environment where the government spends its time ducking its responsibilities, encouraging others to think that they don't need to be serious about their responsibilities. We all have responsibilities. And in a way, I took great heart from the response to the pandemic. Here was a collaborative acceptance of the seriousness of the challenge and everyone was prepared to contribute. I'm staggered at how much change was in behaviour was, was generated change the way we work, the way we travel, the way we spend, the way we, work, the way we save. And, you know, and some of those changes are irreversible. They are going to have very long, significant long-term consequences. Somebody who's interested in reform, thinking, God, if you can change behavior like that, maybe we could get them to agree on climate and move forward in the proper transition. I look with envy at the New Zealand experience of the 1980s and how they, you know, longly came to power with really no policy. <laughs> Piggy Muldoon had left the country in terrible shape, you know, the exchange rate was under downward pressure and they're, they're losing their credit standing and so on. And what what to do in that circumstance for government? And they were able, with the support, with the business community working with, with, the, with, the, with the government, with the bureaucracy, with the treasury and so on, the business roundtable, uh, to make very significant changes in the structure of New Zealand. You know, and you have to be envious of the country that has no states and no upper houses (laughs) to worry about, it's a government that's in power can actually govern. There are important lessons in that for Australia, like seizing the opportunity of the moment. You don't get many chances for reform and when the circumstances come together, you take it and you you run hard on it. That that to me was the COVID opportunity was a very real squandered opportunity in this country because we didn't actually come out of COVID with a better framework to move forward as a nation. We just squandered it, the opportunity. Well, we didn't want to do anything in relation to transition to climate and so on, which is a unique opportunity to do that. And they didn't. And uh, we spent our time debating bloody new gas projects, which was a waste of time, um, waste of money. An offence to anyone who knows anything about the subject, so-called opportunity to reset. We could have reset a lot of our social structures as well as our manufacturing base and so on. But the opportunity wasn't taken. And when you've got an issue running at the same time like aged care, which is a big issue. You know, I can remember in the nineties uh, trying to influence the Howard government. Judy Moylan was the minister and we're trying to well, I was director of a big health care group and I could see the inherent danger of the collapse of aged care. You know, it was obvious where it was going. Howard brought in the Aged Care Act ninety seven and that just sort of privatized nursing homes and so on, which was, has been, you know, putting a profit motive in, in the provision of an essential service and you get the worst possible outcome. I, I just think we lost, lost what the end game was there. One of the interesting things that's come out of all this debate about uh, freedoms and religious freedom now is the catchphrase, but it goes back to the old debate as to whether or not we need a Bill of Rights in the Constitution in this country, which is one of the few countries that doesn't have one, start to see people worrying about what their rights really are, not understanding what they've got or what they haven't got. It does raise that debate again.
0: I mean, I've always been in favour of Bill of Rights because I grew up under Sir Joe's police state.
3: But you knew what your rights were. They didn't exist. Well, exactly.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dr Houston, you just mentioned the profit motive within an essential service like Aged Care, and I think that's played out uh, pretty negatively in Australia, and it's only getting worse. Now, all the independent candidates which we've alluded to so far are of the centre-right, that's natural, they're in blue ribbon Liberal seats. They back business, like Allegra Spender did in her launch speech, while simultaneously advocating for stringent measures to address climate change. Morrison has trialled the slogan, can do capitalism, for the looming election campaign. Our colleague here in the transit zone, Tim Dunlop, who's in Europe at the moment, recently wrote this in an op-ed piece. He wrote this, because at its heart, capitalism is about profit, and it generates that profit almost exclusively through extraction of natural resources and human labour, and it is precisely that extraction that damages the environment. So my final question to you is for our conversation today how do you reconcile that what he claims is a fundamental contradiction between capitalism and countering climate change
3: well i think can do capitalism as i wrote recently is a, is a fundamental reason why we have the climate change i mean the industrial revolution built on fossil fuels was encouraged by governments businesses people governments all went on uh, using existing resources as they thought they should they could and uh, you know, in most cases, in the business sense, we're trying to take a profit out of all that without worrying about the consequences of that activity for the environment, for social structures. And it's a, it's a lack of that awareness. Uh, I've recently started a group called the Council for the Human Future where we have been trying to get a global debate going about what we've identified as 10 major existential risks in the system. That we are not paying sufficient attention to. I mean, climate's one of them, but so is the risk of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear nuclear war, food security, depletion of resources, and so on, collapse of the biosphere. These are major, major of another pandemic. Uh, governments are not prepared or prepared for or are preparing for any of that. They're playing down the significance of them as if they won't happen. Like they've ignored, they ignore warnings there were warnings, uh, pretty specific warnings about COVID-19, which were ignored, and suddenly we have a global pandemic. The climate warnings have been there for a long time, for decades, and um, ignored. We still downplay the significance of them. Here we are sitting in the country about to have a heat wave and uh, floods everywhere, and we don't want to talk about extreme weather events being related to climate. <laughs> but that a lot of the, that climate pressure has come from an abuse of the position of of a, of a capitalist system. You run at the expense of, ignore the consequences in terms of the impact on warming the planet or a lot of social fallout from a lot of that. I was struck in COP26 how the island nations that are about to disappear because of climate, are sort of begging countries like Australia, for Christ's sake, stand up for us. We need a voice, we need somebody to represent our, our concerns, our interests. It, wasn't, it wouldn't have been too hard for us to have done something sub- significant in terms of expressing a strong attitude about fossil fuels, the transitions that need to be made, and so on. But we let that opportunity go. A lot of our essential services are now dependent on institutions that are driven mostly by the profit motive. There has been a reaction within the business community to to this with a greater concern about a broad range of stakeholder interests you saw the hayne Royal commission draw attention in banking to the culture of, of greed and the fact that they pursued profit and shareholder value at the expense of their employees and, you know the broader community and so on the clients another story today i think westpac's being accused of charging dead the dead fees some of these have these excesses have become so extreme that the electorate is seeing that and I'm wondering how is it that you don't have a framework within which capitalism should operate. That's the one thing that Morrison doesn't seem to get, that market forces require a framework within which they are to operate. You need to specify the rules of the game, the regulatory framework within which you want market forces to operate. That's always been part of liberal philosophy. Okay, the L- Liberal Party always stood for a smaller government, lower levels of regulation, more significance to the role of the individual, and reliance on market forces wherever possible as the basic driver of the process. That always assumed you had a framework within which you were happy for those market forces to operate. So we go and sell power authorities and we don't think about the competitive structure into which we're selling them. Or we sell a Telstra, we don't worry about the, the competitive structure. It may have been better, for example, in the sale of Telstra to have kept the basic network, the landline network as it was then, now the mobile network, in public hands and just allowed the competition to come in on the same basis as service providers with access to that landline structure on the, on a comparable fee basis and, and competition to come at the service delivery level just to sell a, a monopoly to the private sector. Don't be surprised if the private sector continues to operate it as a monopoly and to extract above-normal returns There's no thinking about the framework within which you want these forces to operate. So can-do capitalism is, you know, just a fiction. Some people would argue that can-do capital has been fundamental in undermining democracy in a lot of countries, as well as a major cause of climate change, to answer your question. It definitely is. It definitely has been. We can't pretend that it's not. We need to think about some of these longer-term strategic choices, the challenges that are out there, what we call existential risks, prepare better to handle them. We don't do that. I mean, why in Australia, we know that we're going to have more droughts? Why aren't we doing something to improve the, the resilience of our soils? Why aren't we preparing better for fire? Bushfires, we know that it, we are going to have more bushfires, more extreme weather events, more floods, more bushfires. What are we doing to prepare for the, the next one? What did we learn out of the last ones? We should have learned a lot out of the black summer bushfires. The way that sort of all got away from the authorities, and the costs of that. I'm told that the costs of the Black Summer bushfires are about 14 times the costs of the Black Saturday bushfires. The costs of inaction on these issues is becoming far more important than the costs of action. Morrison argues there are costs in responding and getting better prepared. Yeah, but the you know, the cost of not acting uh, much bigger and, and and more inclined to swamp that. And we're seeing that in terms of bushfires, we're seeing that in terms of floods, natural disasters, The cost of inaction on climate are, are, are far more significant than the government's been prepared to admit. And, uh, you know, here in the run up to that black summer bushfires, had Greg Mullins and others wanting to, real extensive firefighting experience, wanting to give the government advice. And Morrison wouldn't even meet them. We saw that in the pandemic with the impact of the pandemic the medical response to the pandemic on universities, closing borders, losing foreign students. No thinking there about uh, the need to take that opportunity to actually improve the university sector, one of the most important sectors to the Australian economy. Indeed, uh, a lot of prejudice involved in not supporting them. And vice chancellors, groups of vice chancellors trying to get meetings with Morrison. He doesn't want to meet them. Made up his mind that universities are fat and ugly and the vice chancellors pay themselves too much money and, you know. I'm not going to bail this lot out. <laughs> no prejudice there. Uh, <laughs> we don't take these challenges seriously. That's one of the reasons why I think the independence movement is going to have a much bigger impact. It will, it's closer to the community that will elect them and in whose interests they'll serve. I don't understand why local members don't spend more time understanding their community. I found it difficult when I was leader that uh, you know, I'd get invited to a lot of community events and I couldn't go to a lot of them, obviously, just because of diary constraints. I made sure that I had a senior member of my staff at every one, speaking on my behalf and listening to their their issues and reporting back. You need to have that structure. Otherwise it's not gonna work. You can't take your seat for granted. The people are I notice objecting to the fact that existing candidates are getting pre-selection challenges, so they should. You should have to defend your position. It's always a big issue. Or how dare you, you know, contest a sitting member? Well, I, I had those each time. I thought that was important that I was held accountable to the electorate for what I'd done, and you know whether I'd listened to everything. They, you can't obviously take everything they they want done. It's not necessarily in everybody's interest. But um, that's where the independence movement are going to have a big impact because they will be closer to their communities and more in tune with their communities. And they don't get, you know, full of themselves, start to believe their own media, how important they are. We've seen too many examples of that in politics.
2: Dr. Houston, thank you very much for being with us this time in the transit zone. Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: Been a pleasure. Good to catch up with Margot again. You're looking well, Margot.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll see you on the trail, <laughs> John. Thank you. You too.
3: Still alive. Every day above ground is a good day. I get up every morning, I look out the window, and I'm still above ground. That's good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dr. Houston, thank you so much. Thanks very much. And thank you, Margot. See you again soon. Pleasure. Our guest in the Transit Zone this time, former Federal Opposition Leader and Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and also joint patron of the Truth and Integrity Project, Dr. John Houston. A link to that project's website is with the on-screen text for this podcast. If you'd like to email us at The Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. As always, we welcome your comments, your questions, even ideas for new podcast episodes. We'd love to hear those. The email address again is transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in The Transit Zone. You are now leaving
1: the Transit transit zone. Zone.